I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode 12 of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we talk to Kwame Kwarton, musician, manager, founder of The Ultimate Seminar, and co-founder of Creating Visions, about his extraordinary journey to date. Here's what Kwame had to say when I asked him why he chose the music industry. I saw a video of Queen live, Freddie Mercury, and I remember thinking, okay, that's the profession I want to go into. I just remember thinking, just the excitement. And the funny thing was for me, I was like, that's the industry I want to go into. And I was saying this at something like 14, like 13, 14, you know? So there was that. And then another real game, when there was a band at school, they didn't have a, a name per se. They didn't have a, a name or anything, but they were just called the school band. Do you know what I mean? And I remember thinking, do you know what? They're good, but I know we can do, I can do this better. So what did you bring to the school band at that point? Once you thought I can do it better? I just started. I, I just, you know, I remember I walked up my best mate and was a, Called one of my best mates, still one of my best mates, actually, a guy called Andy Ross. And I said to him, I said, Hey, Andy, I said, Do you wanna do you wanna be a singer? <laughs> he was like, What? I said, Do you wanna be a singer? He was like, uh, okay. <laughs> like <this. laughs> and um, so we started the school band. Found somebody that could play drums. Bless him, he's passed away now, a guy called Ali Love. And we just literally formed this band, Outcry, it was called, and we just literally started playing. I got a keyboard. My mother had bought me this keyboard, Eurotech keyboard. And uh, and it was kind of clavichordy sounding thing. But I had that. Plus, I hired in a huge synthesizer that I used to have to learn to play on the day. You know, because I was just like, what? This thing was huge. It was massive. But I was like, I want one of those things on stage because it's going to sound massive. And it did. It sounded huge. So I played all the bass lines on that. And then I, I played the other lines on the whatever and then then we had a bass player and a singer and boom that was it i was in that band outcry and we finished school and we came out of school and then we carried on we were all at one point living in a house together and doing all of that that was fine it was really really good but i had a little bit of an epiphany i remember just being like you know what i have to really commit to this because i remember thinking i'm 18 and I gave sort of going to college a try. And I just remember thinking, this is nonsense. I'm falling asleep in classes and it's just not happening. And I was like, okay, what keeps you, what is it that you want to do, Kwame? And I was like, right, I'll tell you what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give myself three years, three years. And if I do not do what I'm supposed to do in three years in music, then I'm out. And so I was like, right, I've just got to go for it. I was in one band from sort of 11 till two practicing then I was in another band from half past three till about six rehearsing then I was in another band from eight till about ten then I'd do ten till about twelve then I'd boom come back home and then I'd wake up the next day and do it again so I was in three four bands at the same time and I just kept doing rehearsal 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 but what I was doing I'd be doing that as rehearsals and then sometimes I'd go out to then a, a live music club at night and just stand there and watch 
seven bands in a night. Going back a little bit, what was really interesting was that even though you left college, college in a traditional educational sense, your true musical education was done in rehearsal rooms. The bands that were just about to be signed, I'd find my way into their rehearsals and I'd sit in the corner and they'd be like, look at this guy. Like, he's just found us. But like, I'd read up on them in Melody Maker and all of that lot. And I'd just read up on them and I'd find them and I'd go, bam, okay, cool. There's a band called, there's a guy, what's he called? Paul Fox. And he was in the ruts, right? And he found a, formed this other band called Choir Militia. They were rehearsing in Ryslip. It wasn't even near me. And I just travelled all the way down, all the way to Ryslip. I sat in the corner of the rehearsal room and I was in, I was in heaven. So once you get your education and you decide that you're going to have this career in the music business, how do you get to that entry point where suddenly you've got a record that is absolutely flying and a band that is incredibly hot? I had a friend who had been had done sessions for me in the band that I was in called Steve Marston. And we had just advertising the Melody Maker, blah, 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 because we wanted a session sax player. He come down, I think he played some session sax for us. Real cool, all good. And uh, we had, we at the same time, we were learning studio craft because we were going into studios and putting stuff together. This is me and just like m- some of my school buddies were still doing that, you know. And this is all on some, there was a council grant sort of studio that you go in and pay really minimals for, but just stay there for a long time, you know. Steve says to me, he says, Quan, I've met a bunch of guys. He said, uh, they live Shepherd's Bushway. Do you want to come down? He says, you know, jam and whatever. Just come and hang out, man, as Steve used to say. So I was like, yeah, all right, cool. I went down there and I met all at the same time, Ned, Ajax Scott, and, well, Ed. But we didn't meet Ed immediately, but Ed basically also was, they were all down there. And then I went and I hear this tune that they had stuck together. It was called The Classic. And I remember going, this is wicked. And they were like, well, is there anything that you think needs adding to this? And they were asking me and I was like, I said, <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> what do you mean? I said, no, I don't. No, I said, I'll tell you what, though. I said, if you're sticking this together as a band, which, of course, by now I'd been in a few, right? So I said, if you're sticking this together as a band, I said, I'll tell you what, you need a singer. They were like, what? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you need a singer. They were like, well, where are you going to get this from? Now, you've got to remember, I've been going to loads and loads of jam. Jam nights, blah, this, that, X, Y, Z, right? So it all ties together. Now, me and Steve... One of the jam nights we'd gone to, I remember we saw this woman standing there, right? This young girl, like, she had hair. It was like a beehive. Huge beehive on her head. And she, t- and we were just like, look at this girl. She just looks incredible. She looks like she could sing down the house. But weirdly, she was doing backing vocals and she was singing really quietly. Anyway, I t- we, t- we had taken her number. I said, ah, I said, Steve, who should we, who should we? He said, I said, remember that girl? He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gave her a call. Called this girl, said, listen, come. She hears me, we chat. She says, I'll come down to the, she comes down to the rehearsal. She listens in. In fact, even before she went to the rehearsal, I remember saying, listen, you come to rehearsal. She said, yeah, I can sing along to that, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, she wasn't really saying much. Anyway, the, the next day, I remember she sat at my house and I said, look, we need to know that you can do this. Can you sing me something? So she sings Prince, Forever I Want You In My Life. And I'm like, 
You gotta be kidding me. Like, this girl's got so treacle coming right out of her mouth. And I knew it because every hair on my back and body was like, like this, right? So I was like, forget it. Come, let's go. She comes down to the studio and the backing track that we had written was to a tune called I'm the One. We write this backing track and like literally she sings down the place in the studio, does it. However many takes she does, not that many. And we're like, yeah, cool. We got it in the bag. Bam. That tune only used nine tracks on the 24-track board. Yeah? Nine tracks is all it used. One track was drums, another was bass. Another one was vocals, another one was background vocals, right? Another one was keyboards, another one was effects, right? Another, and then literally nine tracks, you know what I mean? That was it. It was all it used, okay? And we were like, no, 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 don't spread this out. We'll just concentrate on those nine tracks and mix them right. Mix them right. Bam, that's what came out. We were like, we're going to take this to a couple of labels. I think we took we took it weirdly. We took, so strange. We took it to East West England, took it to this, took it to that. To, basically, everybody was like, nah, you know what? This is just sounds a bit stripped down. Like, you need to put more stuff in. You need to fill it out a bit. You know, because you know how it was back then. People were like, you know, if radio's going to, radio's going to, radio's going to, and we were just like, bun you, man. Forget it. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. The clubs that we go to, everything is stripped back. Why? Because if you've got a big system, right, you only need a few component parts for it to kick. And that's what you've got to concentrate on. And we love being in clubs. Our heads were in bass bins. So we were like, you know what? Come, let's do this. So we were like, forget labels. We're going to put it out ourselves. So we just pressed it up, sat in the back of a van, and drove up and down England, selling them out the back of a van. Finish. Done. Anyway, by the time we've all come back and a week's gone past, we're getting calls from the record shops that we've dropped them in off. Sale and return. They're going, we've sold out now. We need another box. So we're like, what? So we go back there. And a guy who was down in Black Market Records, Mickey D, right, goes, mate, we need another box. I said, this is your third box, dude. He's like, never mind, just bring it. Like this. So we're like at 75 sales at Black Market. Now, you know, if you get 75 so- records sold at Black Market, like, it's on. Anyway, next we're bringing down more for them. And then soon they're like, listen, have you looked at, because I walk in and they said, have you looked at the chart here? And we look at the chart and lo and behold, de-influence, I'm the one, number one. We're like, whoa, whoa. Now, at the same time, if I'm right, Kiss FM was changing from being pirate to legal. And they, they had a test reel, right? And on this test reel was, was I'm the one. I'm the one was on this test reel, right? So the test reel's going around and they left the test reel on for like a month. And it had the same songs on it. And I'm the one was one of those songs. So it was amplifying this like everywhere. It was like all over the place. So um, we started doing gigs and then more gigs and then more gigs. Just at that point, we get a phone call from Eddie Pillar at Acid Jazz. And he says, listen, we love this song. Do you want to sign it to us? And we were like, at the time, obviously Acid Jazz was the hot label. So we were like, yeah, and we'll sign, you know. I mean, they had signed the brand new heavies before us. 
there is us. And then the band that they signed after us was Jamaraquai. So we were like, this is a hot label, right? We're gonna, but we said, we're only gonna sign for a couple of singles. Let's just see how it goes. So we did the two singles. Yeah, I'm the one and the classic. Those did well, you know, still get paid for them to this day, to be honest. And, um, and, and then basically what had happened was Mickey D now, who was at Black Market Records, if you remember the story, had sent over packs of records to a label in the States that had said to him, make sure you send us anything new that's hot, that's British. So he's gone to them, listen, this white label here is by a band from over here called The Influence. You need to check it out. So we get this call from uh, Sylvia Rowe. On the white label, we had put, luckily for us, we put our phone number. So she calls up, hi, like this. And we're like, what? And I thought, we just thought she was joking. And I think she might have even had to put Merlin Bob on the line because we honestly thought, I thought it was just somebody. We thought, honestly, I thought it was just somebody playing a prank on me. I was just like, because imagine, hi, this is Atlantic Records. Could you, could you hold while we get, and I was like, yeah, yeah, mate, mate, nice one. Yeah. Who is it? I said, is, is this Tommy? Is this Mark? Who is it? Like this. And uh, they were like, no, no, actually, this is, this is my Sylvia Rohn's assistant. Please, can you, can you cut? It was this. And then finally, I was like, maybe they're telling the truth. And yeah, you know, they flew in and uh, we were one of the people that they see. I do believe they saw Omar. Uh, they probably dropped in to see the Escoffries who they were signing. And, and they came and saw us and they said, look, we really want to pick you guys up. They said, we, we think you've got it. You know, they said, in fact, what happened was, I mean, it's spooky. The meeting was spooky as most of my life has been. But what happened was we were sat there, right, in this meeting waiting. And this woman comes in and she's hunched and she's got like a, a, this teacher. She says, would you, would you like a tea like this? And we were like, um, uh, actually, and I remember thinking, I don't really drink tea, but I'm not going to be rude. So I said, yeah, actually, I said, we'd like it. I said, would you like a tea? So Sarah was like, yeah, she's good. Sarah was like, yeah, I'll have a tea. You know, and I said, and Ned, did you want a tea? He was like, yeah, yeah. You know, it was one of those. And um, I remember, I'd re- you know, we'd really thought about which song to play and in what order. We really thought about that. Okay. So we played him. There was a guy who then walks in. It's Merlin Bob. And he sat, sits down. Uh, in the main table and you know the tea woman comes gives us our tea sits in the corner and and he goes right okay go ahead play the first song like this so we play the first song and it's i can't remember what it's called bring your love in closer or something like this and uh and i remember thinking yeah this is a good opener all right and um then the next song because i hadn't deliberately we had a put no illusions first no illusions, we made sure it was like second or third because we knew it was a banger. It was like right on, on the money. So we were like, okay, no illusions. We played no illusions next, the demo of no illusions. And he listens to it. And I look, we see underneath the table, this guy's foot's going like stamping his foot, stamping his foot, stamping his foot. We're like, okay, yeah, cool. This is good, right? Then I knew as soon as he hit good for we, I'm like, it's over, it's done. So he hits good for we, the third song, and boom, like this. His head's moving, his foot stamping. We're like, yeah, we got it, we got it, got it. Just at this point now, okay, and this is the thing, you know, we had had our tea, 
right? We'd had the tea and everything, and we've had the tea, and we were really nice to the tea lady. Tea lady, as I said, she come in and sat in the corner. This was all good. So we're like, fine. He goes, okay, cool. And he stands up, yeah? And he swaps places with the tea lady, right? Tea lady comes and sits in the main desk, and it's Sylvia Run. Check it. Always be kind to the tea lady. <laughs> tea lady is Sylvia Roan. And she says, okay, my name's Sylvia Roan. And blah, 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 blah. We were like, woo! So literally, she'd been sat and she's just been checking us out. And of course, we've been into the UK. Let's be real. This is a black woman at the head of the record label. I shouldn't even be saying it like this. But it's a fact. The UK had not seen anything like it, right? And she was, this was in America. So she was a boss and she had flown over. So we're like looking at her with our jaws open going, yeah, show us where the sun. How much did you feel that the bands that came before you were an, an important part of what you'd given to your craft? And also the other acts around you at the time, they were also having success. Mahusive. Look. Let's be real. I still call Jazzy B governor to this day. Jazzy hadn't have been around doing what he was doing with Soul to Soul. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. You know, because don't forget, they were the funky dreads and we were dreads too at the time. Bless me, I've got no hair now, but we were dreads too. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, Jazzy made it possible. Karen Wheeler made it possible. Nelly Hooper made it possible. Right, that lot. But before them, Loose Ends was a huge, huge influence, especially on Sarah. She's huge. I mean, she loved Eugene, Jane Eugene. She loved her, like, cooked food, you know, as a vocalist. Loose Ends and Soul to Soul made us go, do you know what? It's possible. Because we could see it. We were like, they're doing it. We can do it. You get in there, Kwame. The influence have got an, an incredible record. If you listen to this and you've not heard Good Lover, please go and check it out because it is a seminal black British record. Good Lover is happening. Your taste and success. Sylvia and Merlin are looking after you and guiding your careers. But you're based in the UK. We're based in the UK, but we're flying over to America, right, to to do, our, you know, bits of recording, go over for meetings, tour as well. We're learning our craft. We were pitching to get onto tours as best as we could. What happened was Michael Jackson had come over, partly done a tour, gone back to America because his throat, something wasn't right, then come back to finish off the tour. So the people that were originally the support, now it meant that they were no longer because it didn't fit their schedules. So you had crisscross before, blah, all of these people, and they were all no longer on the tour. Now, what then happens, and this is his dangerous tour, is we get asked, yeah, could we do it? And they said, we're going to get back to you. Maybe you'll get it, maybe. And basically it came through. Yes, you've got it. Bam. So we end up doing the Jackson tour, right? The Jackson tour basically exposed us to audiences of 90,000 in one go. You know, so, you know, you're doing Rando Park in, in, in Leeds. There's 100,000 people there. You're doing... Glasgow, right? There's 60,000 people there. You're doing Wembley. I mean, we did Wembley three times, right? With Jacko, right? So we're doing that. And then after that, we then end up doing Prince. 
then after doing Prince, we ended up doing, you know, James Brown. After doing James Brown, we did a bit, we just supported him folk. Do you know what I mean? So we were just becoming known as that. But at the same time, we're soaking up. We're becoming known as that. Yeah, yeah, cool. They're the go-to band. If you're a hot US act, get them because they'll warm the audience up proper. So we were like, fine. And at the same time, we also were winning awards. We're just getting better and better at being a live act. Then we did a week at Jazz Cafe, one a whole week. And then we did the Forum. Then we did the Astoria. And we were doing these places. And, you know, it was, it was great. It was really, really good. So even though you're doing this, how much in control of your career did you feel? I mean, one of the things that is often labelled, particularly in the late 80s through the 90s, for newly signed black actors, that they never felt that they were afforded the same level of financial investment, time, love from the label that some of their white counterparts felt. Was that something that you felt that you experienced in the influence, given the fact that you were signed in the US and that you were signed by two of the industry's heavyweights, that there was a need for the UK company to take you seriously? Surely with a major, a lot of the time is, is that you sign, you sign an international deal, etc. right? Because you're signing for the world, right? But in actual truth, what happened was we signed, we signed to an American label, East West Records, America. And East West UK, who, let's remember, had turned us down, yeah, right, were almost forced into putting us out, okay? So even if you look at that, there's a kind of slight sort of wrench in that in itself. But, you know, bygones be bygones and all that. Everybody making money, so fine. So they were all cool. They put our records out as well. And we had some big supporters at East West in the UK. But the truth is, is yeah, because we were a UK actor being signed to an American company and we lived in the UK, it's difficult because we'd go in to the UK for meetings and stuff and basically there'd hardly be anyone there. Or And also the understanding of black music in the UK was 0.1, you know, on the Richter scale. It was like nothing. It's like, it's going really, really bad. And you still have executives walking around saying black music doesn't sell it in the UK. You know, it's all of this stuff. And you were like, how many records does Jazzy have to sell before you actually believe that it's... I think that first club, club Classics did like five million albums or something stupid. And people were still saying, it doesn't sell. Well, like, what do you have to do? Like, bring out a Luger? Like, what? I don't know. So, but yeah, it, you know, that was tough. But again, that is in the UK, man. We're built of other stuff. You know, black people in the UK, we're built of other stuff. We're, we're like... You tell me that I can't, I'm going to, I can, come on. So that's really what we were about. We were just like, we're going to do it. So you have a successful career in the influence. You have hits, the band does some amazing things, but then you decide you want to be a producer. So what takes you to that point? It's never one thing stops and then another thing starts. What, what it is, is running train tracks, yeah? And all that happens is that one thing moves over to the other and then another one starts, yeah? So... What happened is that I'm in the band, right? But at the same time as being in the band, I had had a long old chat with Sylvia Rome just before I was coming back. And she said, you really need to think about the business side. And I was like, what? She said, you know, your gift might not just be being in a band. It might be being on the business side as well. You need to think about it. And I remember being like, what's she talking about? Merlin was like, just remember, he said, part of what we do here in the States, he says, is bring other people through. He said, so you do the same, bring other people through. And I remember being on the plane on the way back thinking, how am I going to do that? 
you know, we haven't got that much money and blah. And, you know, maybe it's in starting a label, but surely in starting a label, you need money and blah and blah. And then I was thinking, hold on, what do I need to start a label for? What, what do I need to start a label? All I need is a studio. We've got a studio. We can make records. All we need to do is find the money to press them, right? I was like, let's just do it. So I land. I remember saying to the band, listen, band, they were like, I said, we're going to start our own production company. And they were like, what? I was like, yeah, we're going to start our own production company. But of course, the band ever supported, Steve, Sarah, they were like, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, no worries. So we just started. The first act was Sean Escoffrey. The next act was Elizabeth Troy. But the third was Shola Ammer. What I'd love you to do is tell the Shola Ammer story because I've known this story from the, from the moment it happened. I think it speaks to the fact that you should always be alive and be aware of what's going on around you. You just don't know what's going on it's because it is an incredible story. It's the complete truth. I'm at Hammersmith Tube Station. I'm only at Hammersmith Tube Station because I was meant to go to Turnham Green. Anybody that knows about the British tube system will know. Turnham Green, a particular days of the week, you can only get there on a particular line. If you take another line to it, it goes past it to Chiswick Park, right? Now, I was meant to get to Turnham Green for a meeting. I whizzed past it, went to Chiswick Park. So I was like, this is crazy. I thought, let me get on the other side. So I ran across the bridge, Went down on the other side and thought, yeah, I can come back the other way and this way will take me to Turnham Green. Did it again and it went straight past Turnham Green straight to Hammersmith and I was like, this is nuts. So I was like, I'll tell you what, I'll get out and I'll get a cab. Go out to get a cab. First taxi doesn't take me. Why? I've got dreads. I'm a black guy. This is the 90s. Next taxi, I think, surely the second. Don't looks at me, drives up and then does that taxi ting just drives off. I was like, oh no. Third one comes, drives up, looks at me, drives off. See the fourth one now, the fourth one now stops right by me. I think, yeah, cool. I'm going to be able to get in. I go to open the door. That door ain't opening. I look at the guy. He drives off. So, you know, what? I'm just going to take a tube. I'm going home. I'm going to miss this meeting, whatever. Go back to get onto the tube. Just as I'm walking up to the ticket office to get the ticket, this, I hear it. I'm like, what? And I remember all sorts of bells going off in me. Like that, whoever's singing that is really good. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people said to me afterwards, they were like, yeah, yeah, but you saw her, innit? And I was like, no, I didn't see her. I had my back to her, actually. I heard her first. It was about the music. I heard her first. So she was just singing and she walked past me. And I was like, what is that? So now I'm faced with the fact of, I don't know who's sung. They've gone through, because I'm sitting there having, I'm going, whoever it is, I need to, I need to, should I? No, maybe I should go home. Blah, while I'm doing this, the person's walking. I then decide, Kwame. And I remember it literally felt like somebody was tap, tapping my shoulders. It's absolutely true. So it felt like somebody was tapping, tapping, tapping my shoulder. Tap, 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 tap. Go, 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 go. So I just went with it. Instant, just went, went to the ticket place. I said, give me a ticket. Of course, I had the comical thing of him saying, where do you want to go? And me going, I don't know. I just want to catch a train. I want to get actually get through that barrier right there or whatever it was. You know, there was a person standing there. I flashed my ticket and they were like, cool, go through. I ran onto one platform. Again, anybody that knows Hammersmith will know there are plenty of platforms. 
or onto one platform, wasn't there. Ran onto the next platform, wasn't there. But on that platform, I looked across and there was someone stood there. Now, luckily for me, no trains came. I ran up, ran down, I went, way like this. These three girls turned around and they're like, what? I said, was one of you, was one, was one of you singing like this? And they said, yeah, this one here. I said, sing like this. She said, what? I said, sing, please. So she sings, I want to be down. And I'm like, and the way she sings it, like it's flawless. So I'm like, hold it. I said, sing me something else. So she sings me sweet thing, Rufus Shaka. Yeah. Whoa, sweet thing. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I said, how old are you? She's like 15 and a half. I was like, what? Now, at this point, we're at the point now where she's having to think, who's this guy, right? So I just said, wait a second. I said this to all the girls. I said, listen, all of you three, I'm in a band. I'm in a band called D-Influence. And at this point, she goes, I remember you. I went to the Michael Jackson gig and you lot were supporting me. You were the guy that was on the right-hand side of the stage. I was like, yeah. She said, yeah. She goes, you were crazy. She said, you were checking posters into the audience and everything. I said, yeah. She said, okay, you're legit. I was like, okay, bam. And that was it. That was how, how, we, how we met. I was a person that went out and found the talent. The squad together, we would produce the talent. My first two, three years in management, I had a terrible time. I got caught by the industry disease, which was, You've got to find something that people will want to sign, right? But then what happened was, I remember lying there one night going, nah, man, you've got to remember what Lee Fisher said. It's got to be something that you love. I was like, right, okay. So I changed tack. Anybody who knows me knows I'm about asking questions. I've got a thing, it's Kwame's question of the day. Used to be on Facebook. I still, sometimes I post one now. Question 60 or 90, right, was... Who is the most underrated person that you know? Two people from two different places on Facebook wrote, there's this girl you need to check out. And I just followed my nose. And one of those was this girl, she was called Sarah Joyce. And she said, look, I've been trying to get a record deal for 10 years. Nine years, actually, she said. She said, what are you going to do that's different? I said, I just said, listen, I really like your stuff. But I said, I do believe, having heard it all, that, you just positioned everything wrong. I said, this tune, this tune, this tune, and this tune, that forms who you are. These other ones, let's leave them to one side. She was like, what? I said, no, let's leave them to one side. I said, trust me. We do a million records of Seasons of My Soul. You gotta remember, she'd been trying for a record deal for 10 years. So loads of people were really shocked at that. They would, a lot of, I had a lot of industry people say, Kwame, I have no idea how you did that. To a certain degree, you felt defined by colouring, people expecting you to deliver a certain type of acts or a certain type of music. How have you counted that over the years? At the time, the music industry expected me, they wanted me to deliver fast food. And my thing was, I was coming with vegetables. And I was, I was, I was like, listen, I am a black manager and I'm going to come, I'm coming to you with real shit, like real music, like album selling stuff. I'm not saying that single selling stuff is not, because I love me some fast food. But to survive on just fast food, you get sick. You need veg. And the thing is, a lot of music that people know with me, right? Every three, four years, 
just at the point where they've gone, yeah, he's not going to come with anything. I will come with something that will smack you up in loads of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the situation, right? You know, and people will say, oh, yeah, big-headed, arrogant, blah. Yeah, you know what? You need a bit of that. I always liken it to, like, selling windows, you know. You're walking up to a house. The people you know are looking to slam the door in your face. And you're saying to them, in a house where you can blatantly see all of the windows, you're walking in going, hi, I'm selling windows. And you have to believe that the windows that I'm selling are better than the windows that you've already got. If I do my pitch right, you're going to agree to remove the windows that you've got and put in these new windows, which will be better. Now, if you look at it with acts, actually, there's a correlation. <laughs> Walking into a major record label and you're going, this is a house, a major record label, essentially is a house full of back catalogue. They've got everything from Fleetwood Mac to blah to this to that. And you're going, listen, 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 listen. Push some of that back back catalogue to the back here because I've got something that I'm going to put in your front window that is going to make more people walk in. How important is it to have that relationship, being able to to have those people skills when you're in those kind of situations? Do you think that skill is is underestimated or underappreciated? Yeah. The UK music industry is only just beginning to confess to some of it, its wrongdoings in the past with black hats, black women in positions of power, you know, trying to, just trying to make right now, yeah? And the simple truth is, is, is that we lived that. We lived walking into a, a room, being the manager and, and someone handing us their coat to hold, you know, as, as the, they were talking to our act. You know, we lived that. People skills to answer it, yes, very important, you know. And the simple truth is, is many of the truths that our parents said to us, that whole thing about, you know what, you're going to have to work 10 times harder, blah, blah, blah. You see, just played out there, because you're like, I'm having to, like, knock the ball, like, seriously out of the park. So let's fast forward to 2020, because... George Floyd's clearly had a huge effect on the way people see racism, react to racism, process it. We've had different actions, whether it be Black Lives Matter or within our own industry, Blackout Tuesday. But the one thing that people may not know, Kwame, is that in the decades before, you've been actively promoting the education of the next wave of black executives with the Urban Music Seminar, started creating visions. Another new concept where you're trying to empower and educate, inspire and provide ambition to those that want to be a part of the business. You know, you're also vice chair on the professional body of the British Music Managers, the MMF. You're part of the British Diversity Committee. So you're not someone who's been out there and just talked about it. You've always been trying to make a difference. How much have you seen change since the time that you started the Urban Music Seminar to where we are now? And do you genuinely believe that the music business is ready for change? You've got to just kick the door down. In 97, when we started the Urban Music Seminar, this is myself, this is the influence We had an industry. We were being lied to, I just thought. I thought that we had a UK black music industry that was not being spoken about in a major way inside labels and was not being spoken about in, you know, the corridors of power. And yet it was turning over vast, as far as I could see, in clubland, 
the UK would account for club land profits in terms of, oh, people go to clubs and then the clubs make lots of money. But my thing was, but what are they making the money from? Like without the music there, people wouldn't come to the clubs. So then therefore that music is really important. So you're talking about reggae, you're talking about jungle, you're talking about R&B, you're talking about soul, you're talking about hip hop, you're talking about, do you know what I mean, broken beat, you're talking about like, all of these musics. I said, uh, my thinking was, if you took all of those away now, you try and set a drink in one of those places. No one's going to them. Like, so my thing was, right, Sure, we might not have owned those places, but we were really, really important to them. So in actual fact, we're part of the business. So my thing was, we have to talk about it and we have to hail the people that are within that business. Put them on a stage and let people see those people that are working within labels that look like them. So we will put black people on the stage. We put women on the stage. We put we put ev, ev, you know, people on the stage that basically look like the audience, which at the time was something that just wasn't being done, right? That was our thing, okay? Now, this was 97. We went through, we started in 97. The first one was 500 people. The second one was 2005. Third one was 4,000 and it just grew and grew and grew. So by the end, 2003, 2004, where we're like, you know, 7,000 people a day, like it's proper madness. Like it's, it's huge, right? That's the, the Urban Music Center. Rockefeller sponsoring it. You know, it's, it's just huge. They're flying in acts. People are like, whoa, you guys, it's gone crazy. Okay. Anyway, so after 2004, 2005, which was tough as well, because, you know, at the same time, and the thing is, you never understand. Like I filled in blanks only like, in the last couple of years, three years ago, I met Jammer. Jammer says to me, he said, Kwan, he says, I know you from somewhere. Where do I know you from? And we were chatting, we were chatting. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, I did the other music seminar. He said, no. I said, yeah. He said, no. I said, why? He said, listen. And he said that he used to come outside the other music seminar and film acts outside there and he said, that's where the CD, sorry, the DVD battles that he used to film then turned and became, you know, his series, which has obviously then gone on to inspire. Yeah. So he was like, that's where I got the first MC from. And I was like, get out of here. You know, so you just think to yourself, wow. And I was not cognizant of all of that going on. I had no idea. I didn't know that that was happening. Uh, I ain't taking credit for it. Let's get that straight, right? All I'm saying is, it's amazing the knock on the ripple. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of people were behind that. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people, as I said, behind the Urban Music Seminar. And then fast forward, we go 2005 and we stopped 2005. And then 2009, I basically, I started to call up Andrea and Nikki again and say, you know what? This is a bit mad. There's a whole bunch of people that, when I'm walking in centre of town, I said, loads of people keep coming up to me and saying, Kwam, when are you going to start doing those seminars again? When are you going to start doing those seminars? When are you going to start doing those seminars again? I was like, this is crazy. And she said, Kwam, the same thing's been happening to me. Nikki was like, yeah, same thing's been happening to me. And so I said, we, we should start something up. And this time we set it up as a three, you know, so Andrew, you're the co-director. Nikki Charles is the co-director. And I'm the co-director. And we started creating Vision. This was in 2009. 
2010. In fact, no, Creative Vision was formed in 2012, but we started the seminars in 2010. And they just ran. And again, the popularity is the same. She's off the Richter scale. And as someone that's actually in the room, Kwame, whether it be at the NMF, whether it be at the Brits and the Diversity Committee, how responsible do you feel personally to ensure that these changes happen and that they are real and meaningful changes? As part of the reason why I used to sit in MMF meetings early on, I just, I, I, I knew I might be the only black guy in that room. But you know what? Sod it, man. Because if I, if I ain't, then there's none of us in there. So I was like, forget it. You know what? Um, same thing as what Merlin said to me back in the day. You open the window, hold it open, and just get as many people through as possible. That's what you do, you know? Because the simple truth about having a diverse industry, this is all tied to equality and social justice. That's the real truth. It's all quite tied to equality and social justice. If you can see it, you can be it, right? So... It's this thing that goes, actually, the UK will benefit. And this is the bit that many a leader of an managing director, etc., has to get their head. And I know they, they are now, but has to get their head around, which is this thing of, look, mate, if you make your industry diverse, if you give positions of power, to not just to like middle class, like, you know, you know, you can't just give it to one section of the community. You open it out. But by doing it, the simple truth is, is even in economics, you will know you will make more money. It'll make for a healthier industry. Some labels are picking up the mantle and actually really, really going for it, and others aren't, right? And all I say is the ones that that haven't worked it out yet and the message hasn't got through, they will see in X amount of, you know, years and look at their coffers and go, okay, yeah, we, we, we should have addressed it. You've done a lot of different things, Kwame. Artist, producer, writer, A&R guy, advocate. What's the one thing that's given you the most pleasure during your time in the, in the business? Wow, one thing. Oh, my God. Can't give you one. I, I will say recently watching Blue Lab sign to Blue Blue Note Records was for me. Blue Lab Beats signing to Blue Note Records was was a thing. Because I just remember, you know, when you think to yourself, now that is a right fit. I just remember thinking that is a right fit. Lauren Vula selling out the Albert Hall. Obviously, standing on stage, if weirdly, it was at the print show. We were supporting Prince at Wembley Stadium. And I remember standing there and I went up to the mic and I said, not bad for a guy that failed his grade one piano, which was completely true. I failed my grade one piano. So if you're looking to mentor somebody, what piece of advice would you give them to stand them in good stead as they make their way through the business? Persistence and staying in the game and being as true as you can to yourself. You know what I mean? And loving what you do. And, and just all of that, just do it, man. Do it, do it, do it, do it. And, and, and be you and, and scream when you don't think something's honest. What do you expect for the, for the next generation of the global majority, both male and female, in, in the music business of the 21st century? 
I think that many a road, right, has been travelled already by us lot. But I think that they and the way that they're going about things is right. And it's different to the way that we went about things because our time, the time for us was different and what we were up against was different. But many things are still very much the same. So I, my thing is, is I, I love the way this new generation just ain't having it. Like, they're not having it. They're not having it. They smell something that ain't right. They're yelling. They're, they're marching. They're this, they're that. I, I love, I love. They, they've given me, like, real, you know, cause for getting up in the morning and just being about it. And, you know, they, I, I, love, I love what they do. I really, really do. And, um, you know, as they say, it's their turn to drive the car now. And uh, I'm fine to be in the back seat. And if they need me, I will just go, yeah, maybe don't take the left-hand turn. Maybe take the right. But then I'll sit back and they can carry on driving. Because you know what? The future's in good hands with them, you know. They know what they're doing. You've clearly got many years to go, Kwame. I mean, three three decades in counting. There's a lot more petrol in the tank. And I'm sure there are many more ambitions that you want to see achieved as you go on your journey. But when you peer into the future and think about how it's going to be when you look back, how would you want people to remember Kwame Kwarton? Just that I did the damn thing. When people said no, I was just like, fuck you. You know, that was it. I was just like, I'm doing this thing. And and that's it. Kwame Kwarton, artist, producer, manager, leader of talent, and leader of men, many thanks for joining us on the Did You Know podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, it's been great. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know Pioneers, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Kwame for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Also, thanks to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW and Evie, Ren and David and all of the team at WX. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode where we talk with radio plugger and management and label owner Mel Rudder about her career in the music business. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.